world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. William Shakespeare, as you like it. Shakespeare's character, Jacques, in As You Like It, tells us that the world is a stage on which we are all players. We have our entrances and our exits, and in our time we may play many parts. As You Like It is also a play with many songs, and not only has my own life been one with many parts, it has also been one with many songs. I've always loved the magic of a stage performance, and in my early teens I wanted to be an actor as well as a singer. I was what is often referred to as stage-struck. I was also often advised to put these foolish things aside and get a proper trade. Like so many, I struggled with the need to earn a living and following my creative self. Often I have thrown caution to the wind, Often I have reined back. We may all be mere players on the world stage, but the script we follow is sketchy at best. One evening in the 1970s, I appeared on stage with the renowned British comedian Jasper Carrot. Or perhaps I should say I appeared on the same bill. It was at the Heaton Moor Folk Club in Stockport, where I appeared regularly as a blues singer. Amongst many others... I sang the songs of Leadbelly, such as Bourgeois Blues, Good Morning Blues, or Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee's Sitting on Top of the World. It was also the route to my first radio appearance on a programme called Folkweave on BBC Radio 2, but that is another story. It was early in Jasper Carrot's career, and he was on the foothills of success. It was certainly before he appeared so regularly on British television. If I was singing in the evenings, by day I studied zoology at Manchester University. One of my favourite subjects was behavioural ecology, and one field project I worked on was a study of the behaviour of gulls on a roosting site adjacent to a golf course. The new idea at the time was called the information centre hypothesis. This was the idea that one function served by the colony was the exchange of information about foraging sites. Before settling for the night, the birds would exchange information about their success in finding good food sources. In its simplest form, those gulls that screeched loudest or more often would be followed as flock leaders the following day. They certainly strutted their stuff on Shakespeare's world stage. The information centre hypothesis of gull behaviour raised an intriguing question. Why would one gull tell others where it found a good foraging site? The study required long periods surveying the number of gulls flying in and out of their roost and monitoring their behaviour. I monitored them out and I monitored them back in. But occasionally our attention was drawn to the people playing golf. Why do we play games like golf? Is it to hone our skills? Is it an outlet for our enormous intellectual, physical and creative capacities? 
Is it a displacement of the need to display our fitness like the coloured feathers of birds? Are we simply strutting our stuff to get a mate and reproduce? Is it part of the competition with rivals? Is it a gladiatorial substitute? Is it to maintain our genes in the gene pool? Or is it simply that we enjoy it? Perhaps it is all of these and more. Pleasure is a necessary part of our well-being. Reason is a necessary part of our choices. I feel sometimes, when considering this question, that we are so busy considering ourselves as a naked ape that we miss the point that we are human beings. No doubt we can learn an enormous amount from studying apes and other primates. I have no doubt that much of our behaviour is similar, but there is a tendency to view humanity as being somehow simply derived or even contrived rather than species-specific. This view is often expressed in terms of our basic instincts or our inner self, a notion that we are something else deep down. My tutors used to tell me that we were really hunter-gatherers living in a concrete jungle. Much of our behaviour comes from making choices, and those choices are as much made from a cultural perspective as much as from a biological one. Often the question why is asked as if there is an unseen or hidden reason or an ulterior ecological motive, a reality behind the facade. The gene-centred view of life would have us believe the answer is to conserve our genes in the gene pool. All else is regarded as a kind of a mirage, a pretense, a figment. In this view, if a man risks his life for another, it isn't because he is being genuinely altruistic, but because such behaviour helps to protect the gene pool. There is at best a reciprocal altruism in a you-scratch-my-back-and-I'll-scratch-yours kind of exchange. In this view, we are prisoners of our genes, mere vehicles to pass our genes on to the next generation of vehicles. This is the selfish gene story promoted by Richard Dawkins. The answers given to this question of why we behave the way we do often conflates two distinct questions. There is a difference between why, in the sense of motivation and intention, or immediate causality, and why, in the sense of the persistence of such behaviour in a population, or ecological advantage. The latter might be answered in terms of evolutionary ecology. The behaviour enhances fitness for survival, or enhances the genes in the gene pool. The first kind of reason is more to do with psychology, or with choice and intention to act. It is a motivational reason. These two reasons are not mutually incompatible, yet the one is often given as if it trumps the other, or as if the intention or motivation is not or cannot be the real cause of behaviour. Humans and chimpanzees shared a common ancestor around five to seven million years ago. The difference between the two genomes is less than 4%. But this, we are told, comprises around 35 million single nucleotide differences, 
and some 90 megabytes of insertions and deletions. That is a very large number. And looking for whether any particular insertion or deletion makes a significant difference between human and ape is like looking for a needle in a haystack. Even presupposing that the answer to why we are different lies there. But it would also be a mistaken assumption that these differences are what make us human. It may lie as much in how the genes are used or expressed as in the fact that any genes might be different. What it means to be human involves quantitative aspects of biochemistry, physiology and morphology, as well as more qualitative arenas such as cognition, behaviour, abstract thought, symbolic communication, language and culture. We are a species capable of historical understanding. We consider the past and anticipate the future, and we consider ourselves within that perspective. This we cannot find in the genome. All the world's a stage, but there is no set script. Our lives are not mapped. Breast is moulded by our environment and our history. Furthermore, our genomes cannot tell us the thoughts we will have or the thoughts we have now. It cannot tell us our view of the universe or our view of ourselves. It cannot tell us our belief systems. It cannot create our culture and it cannot make our choices. It cannot write a page of script and it cannot determine the purpose or the reason for writing it. Thank you.